Welcome to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug, president of the Franklin News Foundation and publisher of the Center Square Newswire service. Today, I am in suburban Chicago. Established in 2019, the Center Square is a Newswire service that provides coverage of all 50 states and publishes more than 60 original straight news stories each day. The Center Square produces original, taxpayer-centric news that focuses on the size, scope, and effectiveness of local, state, and federal government. Center Square is a 501c3 independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. Our work is republished in nearly 1,000 outlets across the United States. You can also read our work at thecentersquare.com. On this week's Center Square Radio Hour, our journalists explore their top stories from those originating in Washington, D.C., to the underreported stories from the states that hold national relevance. We'll round out our coverage with economic insights from Dr. Orfe Devangi, PhD economist. And along the way, bring you the latest in K-12 education news from our Franklin News Foundation's Chalkboard News team. To ensure that the Center Square continues to deliver the news like no other media outlet today, we ask that you go to franklinnews.org and make a tax-deductible, charitable contribution and support the Center Square and the Center Square Radio Hour. Over the next hour, we're going to check in with our reporting team on a number of stories that made headlines this past week. In national news, a subcommittee in the U.S. House of Representatives held a hearing on progressive ideology in the military. In New Mexico, the state Supreme Court is hearing a case on gun control. In Iowa, the caucuses are coming right up. We'll be back with all that and more in the Center Square Radio Hour. Are you tired of news that puts politics over people? At the nonprofit Franklin News Foundation, we believe in putting people over politics by delivering nonpartisan news and audio content that serves you, the American taxpayer. With Franklin News Foundation, you can read fact-based, state-focused news for free at thecentersquare.com. You can listen to civil, balanced conversations between policy experts through our podcast network at americastalking.com. Or you can get in-depth news on K-12 education spending, curriculum, and school safety at chalkboardnews.com. It's all free through Franklin, where we put you, the American taxpayer, first in every story, episode, and conversation. And it's only possible through our supporters. Together, we can produce content that puts people over politics and brings Americans the news they deserve. Become a supporter today at franklinnews.org donate. Once again, that's franklinnews.org slash donate. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. The Subcommittee on National Security, the Border, and Foreign Affairs, led by Chairman Glenn Grothman, a Republican from Wisconsin, held a hearing this Thursday about the impacts of progressive ideology on the U.S. military. Dan McCaleb, Vice President for News and Content of the Franklin News Foundation and Executive Editor for the Center Square, is here to tell us more. Joining me today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. Casey, this week, Congress held a hearing on what Republicans say are woke policies within the U.S. military, policies that the, that the GOP says endangers U.S. security by, among other things, significantly hindering recruitment efforts. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is a very interesting story and has big implications. I think it's worth addressing first this word that, that has become so politicized, uh, woke, And I think people might struggle to define it Uh, on one side of the political spectrum. The word woke engenders a kind of rage and and frustration at the way that certain ideas are being pushed on people. On another side of the political spectrum, when someone hears woke, they kind of roll their eyes and say, here we go again. What even, you know, what even is that? And so uh, 
you know, it's definitely true that lawmakers are using this language of this woke ideology influencing the military. But what they really mean by that is, is this, there's a, a growing trend of some of the um, more progressive and aggressive uh, liberal ideologies on race and gender influencing military training, Air Force, you know, for example, Air Force Academy training, so military academy training, uh, HR training within the military, and even the schools that educate the children of military service members, right? And so, you know, I'm sure whether our listeners have experienced it personally, or they've just read about it and heard about it on the news, um, this, these ideas are maybe more, more so even than other parts of the country being pushed in the military level because of really the federal government's role and the federal government um, for a variety of reasons, partially President Biden, but even before him, um, has embraced the DEI, critical race theory, you can call it woke um, agenda. And they've really mandated that it be implemented. Right, exactly. They've mandated that it be um, implemented across all parts of the government. And as a result, the military has been um, more quickly pushed into that camp. And so uh, there's a lot of questions, I think good questions being raised by lawmakers and service members saying, wait a minute, does this actually help military readiness? Is this a good use of taxpayer funds? And does this hurt unit cohesion or does this bring does this bring division within the ranks of the military? Casey, the military, the Department of Defense, they really have one primary um, responsibility, and that that has to do with national security. Of course, there's there's the Russia-Ukraine war is almost at its second year mark. You've got the uh, the Hamas terrorist attack against Israel that prompted Israel to invade Gaza to go after Hamas. The U.S. is financially um, supporting Israel and Ukraine in their efforts providing weapons and other things. Um, at the same time, last year, last fiscal year, the U.S. military missed its recruiting goal by 41,000 individuals. I, I just don't get why these, quote unquote, to use the, the rights term, woke policies are a priority right now when, let's let's face it, the world's in a, not in a great place right now. And, and the U.S.'s role in, in national, of course, you also have the border security crisis at the southern border with uh, Mexico. I just don't understand why, why, why this is an issue right now. Yeah, I mean, these international and you know domestic issues certainly highlight uh, and bring more scrutiny to what the military is succeeding at if they're not succeeding at securing the border, um, dealing with some of these conflicts or you know, for example, the U.S. just initiated airstrikes against the Houthis um, to protect, I believe, the Suez Canal. And so um, there's a lot of things going on. I think it's a good question to say, is this is this a good use of resources and focus and time? And you might say, well, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And maybe that's true. But, you know, a big bureaucracy um, can only do so much. And several, uh, you know, multi-theater wars <laughs> is a lot to do. And so you mentioned the recruiting goal of 41,000 short. It's worth noting that that recruiting goal is 41,000 short only after um, the branches lowered their goals to be more realistic. So the problem is actually much greater than that because they've seen this decline in recruiting. So they made their goals less ambitious. And then even with those less ambitious goals, they still fell short. Now, it's probably a very complex problem. There's a lot of reasons why people do and do not join the military. But one of the key ones is that family members are not recommending who join the military. They're not telling their family, hey, you should join the military too. The dad who was in the military is not telling his son, you should sign up at nearly as often. And so um, the lawmakers at the, there was a congressional hearing this week on this very issue. And lawmakers, among other experts, have said that 
the politicization of the military is a big reason why people are not um, recruiting to the same degree their own family to join it because, you know, the idea is that you can only sit through so many trainings on how all white people are racist and how white privilege is one of the biggest problems facing the country uh, before you say, you know, this isn't for me and this isn't for my family. This isn't my dad's military, basically. And so that's the concern. Is this affecting recruitment? Is it a distraction? There definitely are taxpayer dollars being spent on this for consultants, for trainings. You know, it's happening throughout the military simultaneous to a drop in recruitment and seemingly disorder and chaos all around the world. There's also the potential and and it could happen any day, any week, any month now of China invading Taiwan. That's another international concern. The millions of people that have flooded um, into the United States from Mexico, including known or hundreds and hundreds of known or suspected terrorists. It just seems like the military needs to get its act together. We've seen that stockpiles of weapons because of particularly because of the Ukraine war and all the weapons um, that we've supplied uh, Ukraine and their defense against uh, Russia's invasion um, that has been depleted. The U.S. weapons supply um, has been depleted. It just seems like there's much more pressing issues right now when it comes to national security. And, you know, with yeah, con- Congress holds a lot of hearings. They don't seem to get anything done. So I just I don't know what the answer is. from yeah, here. I, I think. Well, I want to highlight one problem. I think the the is this a distraction question is a really good one. There's another one that if you study military history or even just listen to modern military experts and generals, morale and unit cohesion is a fundamental part of military readiness and military strength. You know, from the outside of the military, we might think about it like a corporation. And if it could be, you know, a big corporation has to have some DI trainings, as long as the bottom line stays okay, they can probably do that. But from someone inside the military's perspective, especially in leadership, uh, although the very top of leadership is is pushing a lot of this down on, the, on everyone else, but from leadership's perspective, it is a crucial resource. Morale is a crucial resource. Unit cohesion is a crucial resource. And so if you have some kind of teaching that is alienating you know, black and white service members from one another or pushing out white service members or making them feel a, a certain way, then are they going to be less likely to, lay, to jump on a grenade, right? Is there going to be a less of a sense of brotherhood, which is brotherhood is not just a nice feature of the military. It actually makes the military stronger. And studies have shown this, you know, service members will report this and tell you this, that that sense of camaraderie, that sense of unity within the unit unit is not just a, a nice, uh, warm feeling. It actually makes them fight better. It makes them more effective. It makes them communicate better. And it translates to real results on the battlefield. And so it's not a small thing to degrade the morale and the unity of the military over time. It has real world implications, which are coming, as you said, at a time when uh, we might need the success of the military uh, more than we have in a long time. Casey, all very good points. Thank you, as usual, for your insight into this very important story. Um, Listeners can keep up with our reporting on this topic at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to our D.C. team for that update. In state news, a different kind of hearing is happening in New Mexico. The state Supreme Court is hearing a case challenging Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's executive order limiting where people can carry guns. This comes as a federal court in California struck down the state's broad restrictions on concealed carry. Eliana Kernodal, Assistant General Manager of America's Talking Network, is here to tell us Joining more. me today is the Center Square's regional editor, David Mastio. 
We have a couple related stories out of New Mexico and California today. Let's start in New Mexico, though. The state Supreme Court is hearing a case against Governor Lujan Grisham's executive order restricting where people could carry guns. This executive order has faced a lot of controversy from the very beginning. Can you tell us more about that? What is the executive order? What have been the arguments surrounding it? And what is this case against it? The executive order came in the fall and it restricted the carrying of guns, either concealed or open carry in the area in and around Albuquerque. And originally it was very controversial because it was very broad and the sheriff and the police chief in Albuquerque and the sheriff of the county around Albuquerque refused to enforce the order. The Democratic attorney general of the state said he wouldn't defend the order in court. And so the governor rewrote the order to be much more narrow and essentially focus only on carrying guns where children were playing. What spurred the gun order in the first case was a series of several shootings that uh, ended with the killing of an 11-year-old outside a minor league baseball stadium in Albuquerque. So the case has been working its way up to the New Mexico Supreme Court. They heard the case for more than an hour on Monday, and they have adjourned without saying when or whether they'll they'll make a decision. But judges were skeptical of both sides. The governor's counsel argued that she had the power to declare emergencies, and the other side argued that an emergency is something that doesn't happen every year and that the legislature doesn't legislate on every year, and so gun violence would not be an emergency. We'll see what the court has to say afterwards. So you mentioned that originally the attorney general didn't support her in this order. Did he change his mind when the order was rewritten? Yes. The attorney general backed the order after it was scaled back. Originally, it covered carrying guns anywhere in public. So then there's also a separate but similar case going through the federal courts in California. It's a little bit different because it's not an executive order. It's actually a law passed by the legislature, but it still deals with some similar kinds of rules. So what California law is being challenged and and how does it compare to this executive order? The California law is very similar in that it restricts carrying guns in a wide variety of public places. And it even restricts carrying guns on private property unless the owner of the private property posts a sign that says it's okay to carry guns on his property. A couple months ago, a federal court judge ruled that this was way overbroad and that it covered so many places that it was essentially a repudiation of the Second Amendment. So now the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a panel of that court, has ruled that the lower federal court's judges ruling that the law can't be enforced will stay in effect until the Ninth Circuit hears the case and it is is more fully adjudicated. What should we look for kind of going forward on 
either of these cases? Well, in New Mexico, we're expecting a Supreme Court decision that will decide the case. It's unclear whether they're going to rule on the original executive order or on the more narrow executive order that is in place now. One part of the executive order that is still in place is checking the wastewater of schools for drugs. And that testing is going on, and there's a state website that's reporting on that. There was cocaine found in about a third of the wastewater of high schools around the state. And the uh, state is doing gun buybacks in various places where, in one interesting note, they have had a number, more than 10 guns turned in that were stolen, which is a crime in New Mexico. And they haven't answered my question of whether they're going to pursue those crimes with the guns that have been turned in. And next up in California is a ruling by the Ninth Circuit on whether the underlying law is, is constitutional. What's happened so far is just preliminary preliminary rulings by the federal judge and by the circuit. Well, both of these cases will be very interesting to follow, and I'm sure you or some of our reporters will continue to cover them at the Center Square. Thank you for your insights on these stories today. Thank you, Eliana and David, for that update. The Iowa caucuses are fast approaching and could have big impact on the shape of the GOP race going forward. Let's go back to Dan McCaleb for more on that story. Joining me again today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. Casey, the uh, latest Center Square's Voters' Voices poll dropped this week, just in time for the Iowa caucuses. Iowa voters will be the first to weigh in during the presidential primary season. When all indications are, we're going to see a rematch of 2020. When then-challenger and now-President Joe Biden defeated then-President and now-challenger Donald Trump, of course, with Trump's legal issues and Biden facing an impeachment inquiry and also questions about his age and mental capacity, anything can happen between now and November, and who finishes second in the GOP primary actually could matter. So let's start with the uh, latest national poll, which again shows Trump with a huge lead over his main challengers, that being Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor and Ambassador Nikki Haley, and businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. Earlier this week, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie suspended his presidential campaign. Casey, tell us what the polling shows nationally about the race. What we've seen in our uh, Center Square Voters Voice poll is that Nikki Haley has actually surpassed Ron DeSantis. Now, most polling up to this point has shown DeSantis with a, you know, a lead over Haley beyond the margin of error. Now, he has been far away from Trump. Of course, DeSantis had a much smaller gap between himself and Trump before the FBI raided Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago estate, which we've talked about at length on this radio program about how that moment where the FBI raid was the turning point. You see DeSantis's poll steadily drop, and they've really continued to drop. And as you said, Trump is has more support than all his challengers combined. But this is a really big poll for the Haley campaign. Um, especially because Nikki Haley's campaign has a strong presence in New Hampshire. And I think she has a really good chance of performing really well in New Hampshire. So if Haley is able to maintain the lead that our poll found, now it is just one poll and the numbers change you know, all the time. It's it's politics, it's polling. It is an extensive poll and then it, it's a survey of more than 2,500 
likely voters, which is more a bigger sample size than most polls that discussed out there. And that more than 2,500 sample size includes about the same number of registered Republicans, about the same number of registered Democrats, and about um, 300 true independents. So it, it, it is about as accurate as a poll is out there. But as you said, you know, it's a poll. Things can change between now and November, of course. You're right. I mean, it's a above, above average quality poll, I would say, for sure. And if those numbers hold that Haley has, then she could see herself beating DeSantis in Iowa and New Hampshire, which I think could just really be the nail in the coffin for the DeSantis campaign, as promising and as strong and well as well-funded as it may have started out. If he loses both Iowa and New Hampshire to Haley, I think it is going to let the air out of his balloon and it's going to be almost impossible for him to recover. So this really is pretty big news. Haley um, beating DeSantis by, it's only by one point, but I think even a tie for Haley and DeSantis is not going to look good for him. DeSantis is in some sense, put all his eggs in this Iowa basket, hoping to show that, hey, he is this really strong candidate, hoping to put other candidates out of the race and show that he can challenge Trump. But as the months have gone on, that seemed less and less probable. And now this poll says that maybe he won't even win Iowa at all. Why don't we look specifically at the numbers? Because you know, we're talking a lot about Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley here. But let's let's face it, the juggernaut is Donald Trump, the former president. In our survey of uh, likely Republican voters, 61% of respondents chose Trump. That's well more than the entire rest of the field combined. Nikki Haley pulled ahead of uh, DeSantis for second place by one percentage point, which is within the two polls, two percentage point margin of error. Nikki Haley uh, received 13% support, DeSantis 12% support, Ramaswamy 7%. So even if, let's say, Nikki Haley does beat DeSantis in both Iowa and New Hampshire, New Hampshire closely follows Iowa to be the second state to weigh in in the primary later this month, and DeSantis drops out. Even if Haley were to get all of DeSantis's voters to support her, which is not likely, let's just face it, she would still be significantly behind Trump. This is Trump's race to lose. But as we've talked about before, why don't you just briefly explain why second place actually could matter this year? Why is it important? Well, our listeners probably know this, but Trump faces 91 criminal charges across several states related to his handling of classified documents, his role in uh, January 6th, among other things. And so Setting aside the civil lawsuits, there are very real federal criminal charges against the president. So it's going to be really interesting to see if a conviction happens, if it happens before Election Day. And if it does, does it weaken or just double down the support that Trump has been able to garner? But if it does weaken it and it gives people second thoughts, then they might be looking for who was that strong candidate who came in second uh, who is on an upward trajectory. I think Haley could check those boxes. I mean, she's very different from Trump in a lot of ways, but she's widely viewed as more electable than President Biden. And so if we come around to a summer surprise where Trump's in trouble and Republicans need someone who ha- who can win suburban women and beat Joe Biden, Haley, Haley might be at the right place at the right time, even given her you know less than impressive poll numbers right now. I'm not ready to, to dismiss DeSantis outright just yet. Let's see what Iowa voters have to say. Casey, you will be covering the Iowa caucuses on uh, Monday night. Listeners will be able to follow Casey's coverage and all of the center squares. Great coverage on primary season, the Center Square Voters Voice Poll. We have plenty of stories to come at thecentersquare.com on our new polling, but we are out of time. Thank you to Dan and Casey for that update. 
That'll do it for the first half of the Center Square Radio Hour. After the break, we will look at more top stories from across the nation. How does California's expansion of Medi-Cal affect the availability of gender reassignment surgery? What's the best way to rate school performance? And what does a United Van Line survey show about migration trends between states? We'll have all that and more when we return on the Center Square Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Here are this week's quick hits, some of the stories you may have missed at thecentersquare.com this past week. An Illinois state lawmaker is calling on the Biden administration to close the U.S. southern border after his trip to Texas. Illinois has seen nearly 30,000 migrants arrive since August 2022, which has left many communities in need of help and several others refusing to take part in sheltering those arrivals. City and state taxpayer funds to deal with the crisis have totaled nearly $700 million in the past year. State Representative Brad Halbrook, a Republican from Shelbyville, visited the border last week to see it firsthand. U.S. mayors say they will take on migrants but want five times more in federal funding. Denver City Council member Flo Alvidrez claimed earlier this month that her city is doing more than its fair share of carrying the burden when it comes to taking care of migrants. Mayors across the U.S. have stated they are willing to take on more migrants, though it would come with a very steep price tag. The United States Conference of Mayors sent a letter in November to Congress saying that the federal government needs to spend far more than it has to cover the cost of the border crisis. When the pandemic hit, state and federal governments up financial aid to the public with more welfare benefits, stimulus checks, and loans. That aid is still high in some cases with no signs of changing. In Pennsylvania, total monthly SNAP benefits are up 76% compared to November 2019 before COVID-19 hit, according to analysis by the Independent Fiscal Office. You can find more on these stories and others like them from across the country at thecentersquare.com. We'll be right back with more in-depth news on the Center Square Radio Hour. Knowledge is power, and you deserve to know what happens in your state government. That's why the Center Square's reporting zeroes in on state authorities publishing stories that show where your money goes and who spends it. The Center Square gives power to the taxpayer by tracking politicians' use of the people's money and demanding transparency from state-run agencies. This is how the Center Square equips you, the American taxpayer, to hold your state government accountable. Sign up now for your state's Center Square newsletter at thecentersquare.com. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. California has expanded its taxpayer-funded health care eligibility to include most illegal immigrants, and this Medi-Cal coverage includes access to gender reassignment procedures and drugs. Let's go back to Eliana Kernodal for more on the story. Joining me today is the Center Square's California reporter, Kenneth Shrupp. How are you, Kenneth? I'm doing well this morning. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us. So California recently expanded their Medi-Cal eligibility to most illegal immigrants. Can you tell us more about this? Who was eligible before and what's changed? Sure. Last year, we passed an omnibus bill that included an expansion of Medi-Cal to roughly one more million illegal immigrants. Medi-Cal and Medicare already covered illegal immigrants who are over 65 and under 18 So what this does was uh, expand eligibility to all of those in the intermediate age bracket. And how does this connect to gender reassignment procedures and drugs? Is that something that's covered for all people within 
Medi-Cal? Yes, uh, Medi-Cal, uh, which has about 14 million current beneficiaries in California, does cover gender reassignment procedures and gender change hormones for those who do get a prescription from a licensed care provider in the Medi-Cal system. And how much is this expected to cost the state of California? And what other concerns does it raise going forward? Some progressive groups say this expansion in coverage will add about 700,000 beneficiaries to Medi-Cal, given that we don't really know how many illegal immigrants are in California, that number could be much higher. But Estimates vary from somewhere to about $3.5 billion to $4 billion, depending on who you ask, on an annual basis. Uh, as I said earlier, we don't have any idea how many illegal immigrants are in California, so the number could end up being perhaps twice as high as, as estimated. We just won't know until we start enrolling people in the program. This is really important, though, because... California is currently facing a $68 billion budget deficit for the 2024-2025 fiscal year. The governor proposed just $8.5 billion in spending cuts with the rest of his plan really just to shuffle around spending from different accounts, postpone spending, and allow agencies and organizations that postpone their spending to take loans against the future money they're going to get. So this is really just a one-time gimmick. And this $4 billion is still quite a significant chunk of change and accounts for, you know, would account for about 50% of the spending level that Newsom has agreed to cut. So then the conversation surrounding this, has it mainly just focused on the impacts of, of adding more people to the system? Or has there been any particular conversations about whether or not something like gender reassignment should be part of the package? Uh, That's not really a matter for debate in California. I think what the conversation is focusing now is the cost of taxpayers. Uh, We've had an assembly member introduce a bill to end taxpayer funding for uh, legal aliens health care, and also on what is happening with Medi-Cal itself. Medi-Cal reimburses at a much lower rate than private insurance does. So a lot of doctors are wary of taking on Medi-Cal patients, given the fact that cost of living is skyrocketing. And uh, to make things a little more difficult for them, we have this new minimum wage of $25 an hour for just healthcare workers that's phasing in. And from what I'm hearing from healthcare experts is that this is going to reduce the number of nurses and staff available at each of these doctor's offices. So you're going to see likely fewer doctors taking Medi-Cal for a larger patient base and also have fewer staff to help handle cases that they already have, which means that people are going to end up waiting a really long time for care and adding maybe a million people sort of at a baseline level to the system could make it much harder for those already on Medi-Cal to get the care that they're paying for. So it, it sounds like it raises a, a lot of concerns outside of the realm of even just what it's covering, but really how they're going to be able to cover those things. C- correct. And may, I might like to add a clarification. So Medi-Cal is for lower income individuals in California. It's mostly completely subsidized care with very low co-pays. And it is designed for people only at a certain very low income level. The place of gender reassignment in healthcare and healthcare coverage has been a wide ranging question. You mentioned that it's not a particular question in California for the most part. 
Other places, take Ohio, for example, it's been more of a, a controversy recently. They've been in the news lately as the legislature and governor have gone back and forth. I know Ohio is pretty far away from California, but can you kind of tell us how those conversations compare between Ohio and California? In Ohio, the governor vetoed a bill that would have had wide-ranging implications for the transgender community. The bill would have banned surgeries and hormones for minors and also required that the state's universities and and K-12 only have single-sex teams. This was vetoed by the governor, seeming that it was too extreme of a measure. Even somewhere like Ohio, we saw very strict abortion limits be uh, rejected by voters, despite being an extremely pro-Trump state. So you, you, can't, you can't always count on voters to deliver on issues when it really is getting close to the things that people care about at home, even if they don't support it themselves. So the Ohio governor ended up passing an executive order that would only ban gender reassignment surgery for minors, but um, did not adopt the single-sex teams and banning even hormone therapy. Well, thank you for your insights on these stories, Kenneth. I'm sure we'll continue to follow any developments that may come along. Thank you, Eliana and Kenneth, for that update. Another topic up for debate recently is how to use grades in rating the quality of schools across the state, specifically whether to grade schools on an A through F scale or find other ways of representing their performance. Dan McCaleb is back to tell us more. Joining me again today is Brendan Clary, Chalkboard's K-12 editor. How are you, Brendan? I'm doing pretty well, Dan. How about you? I am doing fine, thank you. Brendan, uh, we've written at ChalkboardNews.com how many states are considering foregoing the traditional A through F grade system when it comes to grading and overall schools' performance. Georgia is the latest uh, state to consider the possibility. We wrote about that at ChalkboardNews.com. What's with this recent trend, and why is Georgia considering something similar, Brennan? Yeah, Dan, so it's it's a really interesting debate over how do you grade a school's performance in terms of accountability so that parents and maybe policymakers, other people in the community have an awareness of how their school is doing, right? So there is a one metric is, is like a conventional A through F uh, grading scale. And I think we're all pretty familiar with that. Those of us who have that scale, you understand then, you know, how a school is doing, if it's it's getting an A, right, it's doing doing very well. But there are some critics who say, well, you can't really condense an entire school's performance to one letter grade, right? And, And maybe it's oversimplistic, or maybe it's not fair, you know, in terms of you know, the students who attend there or so basically there's a lot of different factors in, you know, those accountability ratings. So trying to reduce them to a a letter grade, you know, may do a disservice to the school, to the teachers there, to even parents that, you know, might have to dig a little bit deeper to try to figure out what's going on. So that's, that's sort of the, the root of the issue is what is the best way to help parents, community members, uh, understand, how their school is doing. And so that's sort of at the the crux of it, right, is is how do we sort of do justice by these schools, but also, you know, help parents understand how the, the local school is doing, right? So it, it, let's say like George is considering, and some states have already done this, what do what they replace the A through F grading system? I mean, as students or as parents of students, we most of us, I think, grew up with Hey, your child got an A in math and got a B in English and got a D in science. And we got to work on science with my child. 
So it is fairly common and, and common knowledge. So what, what do you replace? What are these schools replacing? Or, or is, is that still to be determined? The no, I, th- I think it depends on the state, but I think that it's sometimes a different, like a different scale of like one to a hundred. So that I think is what Michigan replaced its A through F scale with, you know, so instead of an A through F, you know, grading system, it's a one through 100. So, you know, if your school gets a 33, then, you know, it's so I think maybe it's a wider range, but again, you may not understand exactly what that means. You know, if a lot of the schools near you are 44, how does that compare? You know, so it, it might be, it's, it, I think it is a little bit less intuitive for, for parents potentially. That is maybe something that kind of goes against that, you know, one through a hundred or that, you know, there is, if you move from a different state to state and there are different metrics for that, I think that that is sort of the, the issue there that, you know, there, there are these different sorts of accountability tools, these different metrics for, for grading school performance, if you're not using that A through F grading system. And so I think that, that that's part of the question there, Dan. And I mean, to state superintendent Michael Rice said last year in Michigan about Michigan recently changing from A through F grading to that, that one to a hundred, you know, that schools are complex. And essentially what educators do daily for children is is complex as well. And so it distills poorly into a letter grade system is what the state superintendent Michael Rice said in Michigan about that law. And so there, there's this, but I mean, recently though, we did have Tennessee last year for the first time in December issuing a letter grade. So there are these states who are saying, you know, this is, they're going the other way. And they're saying, we're going to have for the first time an A through F grading system. And uh, nearly four in 10 schools in Tennessee received, you know, A's or B's under the new grading system. So I think it is, you know, I think that there are some states who are saying, okay, we're going to get rid of this. We're going to do a different metric because it's not really fair to teachers. And then other states saying, you know, we, we want to have the A through F grading system because it's easier to understand, right? So that's that's sort of the the topic. It is maybe not as cut and dried as like there's a right answer or a wrong answer here, but it might be, you know, what do voters prioritize? And and that's just an interesting, you know, question. And I don't know if we'll see whiplash, right, of going back and forth between the grading systems, you know, depending on if Republicans are uh, in the legislature. I know that in Michigan uh, in 2018, that was the, the Republicans during a lame duck session. They're the ones who brought that in. So that might be some of the consideration there is, you know, what's favored by the, the party that controls the state legislature. You know, I'll be honest with you. To me personally, my students, both my children, I have two children. They're both college age now. They're out of the K through 12 school system. As long as I understand the grading system, it doesn't matter to me if they use A through F or 1 through 100. But, you know, if you're a parent and you're used to the A through F system and you relocate to another state and it's got a different system, it just seemed to me uniformity. Well, first, having parents understand what the grading system, whatever the grading system is, means so they can make the best decisions for their students if it comes to, hey, this school is failing. I don't necessarily want to send my student to this failing school. What are my options? Well, and that, and that I think is is some of the advocates who say, you know, a this A through F school grading system is better than, you know, the alternative. They're essentially saying what you kind of said is like this lays it out on the table a little bit finer, puts a finer point on it. So if you have a student, if you have a school that's getting an A, that is a good school. That is a good grade. But if you have a school that's getting a C, you're probably not happy with that if there's a B or an A school that you can go to. So it sort of puts the finer point on there. And I think in their view, some of these advocates like Excel and Ed, they're saying, you know, this is important for uh, accountability and for striving for that excellence, right? And putting that kind of finer point on it. Like nobody wants to go to a D school, but if, you know, you have that as a one through a hundred and it's kind of harder to see what like a 72 means, you know what I mean? So I think that that's sort of the the question there of, of how do you... Um, 
get those metrics the, the, the best way. So interesting discussion, Brendan, but that is all the time we have. Listeners can keep up with this story and all stories related to K through 12 education at chalkboardnews.com. Thank you, Dan and Brendan, for that update. Quality of education is often a major factor when a family is considering moving, but there are some other factors too. The United Van Line survey shows which states people are moving from and those to which they're moving. While some of the details are different than other migration data we've looked at before, the overall trends are the same. Joining me as always to dig into the details is PhD economist Dr. Orfe Devungi. Dr. O, I want to hop right into it and talk to you about one of my favorite subjects, out-migration. So United Van Lines, um, and U-Haul does this too, but the United Van Lines uh, national study came out, like, and, and basically what they do is they track you know, where their vans go, and they offer up data that gives you an insight as to where people are going and where they are coming from. And the out-migration list, you know, the places where people are moving out of, it's kind of like, I hate to call it a broken record, but it's largely a lot of the same states. And they're, and, and the vast majority of them are blue states. And they're, they're states that have issues with, you know, pension debts and uh, cost of living is high. And they've got issues with crime. They've got issues with poverty. They've got issues with jobs and job creation. The top eight outbound states in the United Van Lines survey for 2023, number one, New Jersey, number two, Illinois, number three, North Dakota. We could talk about that. I think that that's largely driven by, you know, lack of, of opportunity around uh, the energy industry. New York State, Michigan, California, Massachusetts, and Kansas. And I have not studied, you know, sort of like Kansas out migration. Hasn't been on my radar, but apparently out migration in Kansas has been has been an issue. So where are the people moving to, according to United Van Lines? Take a look at this list, and you explain to me what exactly is going on here, because this is this is an interesting array, and these are not states that you would ne- necessarily think would be on the top of this list. Number one being Vermont, which I find to be very interesting. Totally. So that you have to understand something about the United Van Lines. And I, and I know because I was somewhat involved in looking at their data, their migration data, is that this represents their customer base. And their customer base skews higher income and older, not representative of all movers across the United States. Right, so that's the first thing. But when I looked at their data, what I learned is that regardless of these, you know, top destinations by total row flows of migrant flows, mover flows, if you look at the ratio of inbounds to outbounds, in other words, net migration, if you look at net migration, what you learn is that movers were essentially relocating to less expensive metros with less competition in the housing market. And those places with the most positive net migration were Charlotte, North Carolina, Indianapolis, Indiana, and a couple others like Raleigh, North Carolina. So so a couple of these markets, Nashville, Tennessee, a couple of these markets. And, you know, if you take a look at migration flows in 2022, from the official 
U.S. Census Bureau or American Community Survey, well, you know, these places kind of match what we kind of already knew. You have these these hot, hot metro areas, you know, at least they're getting hotter, you know, that are still somewhat affordable, despite, right? So relatively affordable, that have a lot of upside potential. And so the upside potential comes from the fact that people are moving to those places that are relatively more affordable and that are nicer, I guess. You know, you think about the weather, they tend to be south. There are also places where there's a greater mix of housing being built, right? And so they offer more options for people. Essentially, what's interesting is even though this survey is only basically United Van Lines consumers, it still tells a story. It paints a story that's consistent with what uh, the official migration numbers also portray. Another thing that I learned from looking at the data is that is that those places with the highest net migrant flows also tend to see a stronger home value growth, right? In stronger increases in home values in the year that follows the survey. And so I expect those markets to really outperform, at least in terms of seeing home values increase in those markets in 2024 relative to the rest of the country. So let me run through the places where people were moving to just so that we're sort of complete and putting it together. I said Vermont was number one. Washington, D.C. was two. And you said that the United Van Lines clientele skews older. Those are probably people that are, that are exclusively in the U.S. Senate. O- older, <laughs> higher income. Older, higher income. Ah, that's, that's a good one. No, for sure. For, for sure. I mean, you have, a lot of, you have a lot of people who move to the D.C. area. D.C. is kind of separate. It's kind of unique in the sense that it's a massive government uh, hub, yeah. government employer, right? And it's so, very interesting, though, that, that, so that, so that shows up. South Carolina was third, Arkansas fourth, Rhode Island fifth, which I found to be kind of an unusual one. But you've talked about Providence kind of being uh, yeah. in particular so you, on the upswing. If you, look, if you look at net migration, then you have Charlotte, Providence, Indianapolis, Orlando, and Raleigh, North Carolina at the top. Charlotte and Raleigh both in a very close, close very close proximity of each other, which is very, very interesting you know, if you've been paying attention, you know, there's a big tech hub in that, you know, it's kind of the tech hub of uh, of the East Coast. Yeah, it's the triangle. And it's a beautiful part of the country. You said North Carolina. So, North, you know, North Carolina and Raleigh and Charlotte have, have largely driven that, you know, the increases there. South Dakota, Governor Christy Nome, I see ads in my local market here in Chicago for, you know, come live and work in South Dakota all the time. Alabama, New Mexico, and West Virginia. And, you know, New Mexico and West Virginia aren't necessarily, um, and you know, in Alabama also. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily, you know, garden spots, which makes it very interesting. But I think that one thing that the three of those states, and actually include South Dakota in there as well, those four states, South Dakota, Alabama, New Mexico, and West Virginia, I mean, you do have a lower cost of living there. And that, so this would be probably keying in on some level to, uh, uh, older people and people who are maybe looking to retire. Retiring to South Dakota, not so sure about that, but, you know, I don't know. Interesting list. Any uh, any final thoughts on this, Dr. O? No, I mean, you just have to know, you have to pay attention, right? Especially if you're like a real estate investor, you know, where people are moving should be your number one, is the number one thing I look at. And that data is suggestive that, you know, if you're, 
own property in some of these markets that we mentioned on the show, you're going to be okay. You're going to do really well in 2024, as opposed to uh, people who are in markets that are shedding people. Always great to spend time with you. Thanks so much for the insights. That will do it for another week of the Center Square Radio Hour. The Center Square Radio Hour is a production of America's Talking Network, produced by Eliana Kernodal. If you missed some of today's show, you can find it at americastalking.com. I'm Chris Krug, and on behalf of everyone at Franklin News Foundation, thank you for listening to the Center Square Radio Hour.